I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. It was 5 a.m. on the morning of April 16, 1998, when the sirens and horns of emergency vehicles woke the sleepy residents of the Bloor and Dufferin area in Toronto's West End. The smell of smoke filled the crisp spring air, and flames could be seen shooting into the early morning sky. It didn't take long to discover the source of the fire. It was the historic Christ Church St. James on Shaw Street. But no sooner had the fire trucks arrived when they got word of another emergency. Two other local churches were also burning. Police and fire crews dispersed to all three locations. The fires were out of control, and one distraught woman had already been rescued from one of the burning churches. Firefighters didn't know if there were any other people inside the burning buildings, but the smoke and flames were too intense. They would have to wait until the fires were contained before they could search for any bodies inside. But... Before any of the fires were extinguished, a body would be found. Not in any of the burned-out churches, but in one of the most common places you would find a body. In the morgue. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true story of one of the most bizarre murder cases in Toronto history. Three churches set ablaze in one night, and a murder victim discovered in the strangest of places, surrounded by other corpses. One person was suspected in all four crimes, but nothing about the fires or the murder made sense. The suspect was a well-liked, easygoing family man, and now he was missing. Was he another victim, as his family believed? Or was he the mastermind behind a rampage of murder and arson that left a community reeling? It was a mystery, the likes of which the city had never dealt with, 
and the answers remained with one man. But where was he? This is Murder in the Morgue, The Two Faces of Stephen Toussaint. Glowing red and orange. Shirley Ivins knew something was wrong when her husband failed to come home from work on the night of April 15, 1998. Bob Ivins was as regular as clockwork and never missed dinner with Shirley and their two kids, Megan and Michael. The couple had been married for 22 years and family was Bob's priority. If something had come up at work, he would have called. Bob worked at the University of Toronto in the Medical Arts Building. He was a technician in the morgue that was attached to the medical school. That's where human cadavers were stored for use by medical students. Bob had been at the job for over 20 years, and he took great pride in his work. But lately, he had been stressed more than usual. He had confided in Shirley that his longtime colleague wasn't pulling his weight and often didn't show up for work. Bob was overworked and he was tired of covering for his friend. When Bob didn't arrive home on the evening of April 15th, Shirley called the morgue office. But her calls went straight to voicemail. And the same thing happened when she tried Bob on his cell phone. Worried about the recent stress he had been under, Shirley decided to drive to the university lab from her home in Toronto's West End suburb of Etobicoke. When she got to the university, she was relieved to see Bob's gray jeep parked outside the medical building. He had probably crashed on the couch in the lunchroom, thought Shirley, and he would likely show up later that night. Shirley returned home. The following morning, Shirley was awakened by a strange phone call. It was Norma Toussaint on the line the wife of Bob's work colleague, Stephen Toussaint. She said two officers had been to her home at 6 a.m. looking for Stephen. According to the police, the church that the Toussaints attended was on fire, and they needed to locate Stephen because he was a senior member of the church. But according to Norma, he hadn't come home. Shirley Ivins didn't know what to make of the church fire, but she quickly realized that both men who worked at the University of Toronto Morgue had failed to come home from work. Shirley hung up the phone from Norma and called the police. It would be the last time the two wives would ever talk. In the early morning hours, of Thursday, April 16th, a security guard working the overnight shift at the University of Toronto received two frantic calls from the wives of the men who worked in the morgue in the medical arts building. Neither of their husbands had returned home the previous evening, 
and they were both very concerned. The security guard checked the morgue where they worked, but saw no sign of either employee. He checked other areas in the building as well. Maybe one or both of them were sleeping in the lunchroom, as some of the workers in the building were known to do. But again, he saw no signs of either men. Just before his shift was scheduled to finish at 10 a.m., the security guard decided to do another round of the building. Walking into the morgue, there was still no sign of activity. But this time, the curious guard decided to check a back room. It was more of a closet where embalming chemicals were kept. When he opened the door, he noticed something very odd. In amongst the bottles and boxes was a body bag, and it looked like it was occupied. Opening the bag, he discovered a body. And even though he was standing in a morgue, the security guard knew right away that this body did not belong there. It was fresh. When the Metro Toronto Police arrived at the University of Toronto morgue, they discovered the bloodied and battered body of Bob Ivins. An autopsy later revealed he had died from blunt force trauma to the head, and it was what investigators would deem overkill. And it looked personal. The sheer brutality of the assault indicated that there had been a great deal of rage. In fact, he had been so badly beaten, the police initially had difficulty identifying him. He was still wearing hospital greens, his standard uniform, and police confirmed that he had been seen by another worker in the building around 3 p.m. the previous day. The police also learned that one hour later, at 4 p.m., the chairman of the anatomy department had run into Bob's colleague, Stephen Toussaint, in the building. But where was Stephen Toussaint now? He hadn't arrived home after work, and now his co-worker had been found murdered, and his beloved church and two others had burned to the ground. The police knew there had to be a connection. They needed to find Stephen Toussaint right away. Stephen Toussaint was born in Grenada in 1943 and immigrated to Canada in the early 1960s. He and his wife Norma had been married for 31 years and lived in a tidy bungalow in Scarborough, where they had raised two daughters who were both musically gifted. Stephen had worked in the anatomy department of the University of Toronto Medical School since 1967. His job was to receive, prepare, and store the donated bodies that were used by medical students in their anatomy lab work. He would also embalm and arrange disposal of the bodies once they had been dissected. Bob Ivins had started working in the mailroom at the university in 1971, then eventually transferred to the medical department's morgue, where he reported to Toussaint. For 22 years, 
the two men worked side by side and handled approximately 120 cadavers a year. In February 1996, Susan Hausman joined the two-man team. A licensed mortician, Hausman was hired to assist with the increasing workload in the department. She soon discovered that Bob Ivins was a hard-working perfectionist, while her other co-worker, Stephen Toussaint, was hardly ever around. Bob was doing most of the work, while Stephen would show up drunk, or sometimes not at all. He would often smell of booze, and it was a widely known secret that he kept a bottle in his desk and another behind some ceiling tiles in his office. Everybody looked at Steve as if he was a great guy, said Susan. But Bob and I knew he had a dark side. According to Susan, Stephen would boast about women he'd had sex with in the morgue's lunchroom. And he even showed her and Bob a little black book where he kept the phone numbers of his alleged conquests. He said he would enter the numbers backwards and put doctor in front. This was just in case his wife ever found his book. She would assume the phone numbers belonged to doctors he worked with. Susan Hausman left the department in August of 1997. She'd had enough. But she returned in March of 1998 to fill in for Stephen Toussaint while he was on vacation. She was immediately appalled by what she encountered. The conditions in the morgue had gotten even worse. A freezer, originally meant to hold a dozen bodies, was packed to the ceiling with over 40 bodies and body parts. Bob Ivins told Susan that Stephen Toussaint didn't want to be bothered with embalming the bodies, so he just kept throwing them into the freezer. But while Stephen was away on vacation, Bob and Susan cleaned up the morgue and sent most of the bodies to the local crematorium. Susan felt sorry for Bob because he was always covering for Stephen and she urged him to go to his supervisor to complain. Reluctant to do so at first, Bob finally agreed. After 22 years, he'd had enough. He cared for his longtime colleague, but something had to give because his own health was starting to suffer. In early April, Stephen Toussaint returned to work after a three-week vacation. He soon discovered that the morgue had been cleaned up and reorganized in his absence. He was not happy. Bob Ivins was junior to him, and he had not approved of any changes. But his shoddy work and unexplained absences had finally caught up with him, and the head of the anatomy department issued him a letter of reprimand. The letter did not address his drinking specifically, but advised him that the university would be forced to take further disciplinary action if his work performance didn't improve within three months. It didn't take Stephen long to figure out who had complained about him. 
With just the two of them working in the morgue, he knew that Bob had gone over his head and filed a complaint. He was furious. On the day before he died, Bob told one of the cleaning staff in the department that he was concerned about Stephen's reaction to the letter of discipline. He knew Stephen was angry. Then, on Wednesday, April 15th, Bob Ivins didn't come home for dinner. And while his wife and kids were waiting for him to arrive, Stephen Toussaint had clocked out and was having drinks with other colleagues from the anatomy department. It was a regular thing. A group would get together at the Elm Tavern on College Street, across from the medical building. Those in attendance later said that Stephen was his regular, jovial self, and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. He had his usual couple of vodkas with a chaser of beer, and then left about an hour later. He said he had something to do. Hours later, the night sky would glow orange and red as flames danced above three beloved churches in Toronto's West End. And Stephen Toussaint would be missing. The day after the three churches were destroyed, the fire marshal's office brought in specially trained dogs to sniff for human remains. No bodies were discovered in the rubble, but the fire marshal did confirm that the fires had been deliberately set. Remnants of a gasoline accelerant had been found at all three locations. Members of the congregation that Stephen Toussaint belonged to gathered on the street in front of their former church in the heart of the city's Little Italy neighborhood. The stench of charred wood filled the air. Some people wept, while others stared in disbelief at the blackened pile of bricks and broken stained glass. Many of the onlookers had been married or baptized in the church. But now, nothing was left of their much-loved house of worship that had been long considered a focal point of Toronto's black community. Christ Church St. James was a British Methodist Episcopal church. Built in 1924, the Shaw Street Building was the oldest black congregation church in Toronto, and many of its over 1,000 faithful members were descendants of American slaves who had escaped to Canada via the Underground Railroad in the 1800s. The church was the spiritual and cultural home to many, and its members had just recently completed a major renovation, repairing some of the brickwork and updating the kitchen and basement. Now the building was gone, but so too were the many historic photos and documents that had chronicled the church's role in the development of the city's black community. Hundreds of memories and mementos they could never get back. Now, their church was nothing but a burned-out shell, and it was going to cost millions to rebuild it. For the parishioners standing on the street that day, and for many others involved with the church, 
it just didn't seem possible that one of their most respected members could be behind this. Stephen Toussaint was seen as a pillar of the Shaw Street Church, where he had been a member since arriving in Canada from his native Grenada in the early 1960s. He was the Sunday school superintendent and the treasurer of the church. And he was even the captain of the church bowling team. Everyone loved Stephen. He was a hard worker and an upstanding family man. He had an effervescent personality and a great sense of humor. But beyond Sunday school and bowling nights, it turned out there was another side to this devoted family man. One that he had kept secret for a long time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In 1998, the Bloor and Ossington area in the West End of Toronto was well-known for seedy bars and booze cans. And Stephen Toussaint was a familiar face in most of them. Toussaint was a well-known and well-liked alcoholic who frequented several establishments along the Bluer West Strip. At places like Janky's Bar and Grill, he was as well-known as the furniture, and he never left sober. And according to a longtime drinking buddy, Stephen was with him in several of those establishments on the night of April 15, 1998. Stephen's drinking friend, who said his name was Terry Dinsmore, told the Toronto Star newspaper 
that he had known Toussaint for 15 years, and he was his best friend. He was always helping other people, said Terry. If he saw a guy on the street, he'd give him $5 or buy him a sandwich. That's the kind of guy he was. Terry, a former biker, said he spent the Wednesday night with Stephen Toussaint. The two men had gone drinking at several bars along Bloor Street until Stephen ended up meeting a woman whom he eventually left with. According to Terry, Stephen drove off in a red Toyota Tercel with a blonde woman around midnight. He was so drunk he could hardly walk, said Terry. So I don't think he was running around starting fires, he told the reporter. Terry also stated that he met up with Stephen the following morning, and the two shared a couple glasses of Portuguese wine at another dive bar. Apparently, Stephen was nursing a bad hangover and talked about the blonde he had met the night before. Terry said he often met Stephen for a couple of drinks in the mornings before Toussaint went to his job at the university. So when Stephen left, Terry assumed he was going to his work like he always did. But no one had seen him since. The police weren't convinced of the drinking buddy's story. They had canvassed the bars around Bloor and Ossington, and no one else remembered seeing Toussaint and Terry that evening. And no one remembered seeing a mysterious blonde woman either. The last confirmed sighting of Stephen Toussaint had been at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday, April 15th, when he left his work colleagues at the bar across the street from the Medical Arts Building. And by the following morning, his church and two others had been burned to the ground, and his co-worker Bob Ivins was dead. The police were anxious to speak with Stephen Toussaint, but he had not contacted his family or anyone else since the previous day. Was he on the run? And would he try to flee the country? Investigators alerted customs and immigration officials at the airport and at U.S. border crossings to be on the lookout for Toussaint. Officials in Grenada, his birthplace, were also contacted by the Toronto police. They agreed to interview Stephen Toussaint's extended family, but no one had heard from him. This is probably the most bizarre case I have ever worked on, said Detective Greg McLean, the lead homicide investigator on the case. Stephen Toussaint had simply vanished. Then, on Friday, April 17th, two days after he was last seen by University of Toronto colleagues, the police discovered Stephen Toussaint's car, a red Toyota Tercel. It had been abandoned at the Scarborough Bluffs, not far from his home. There was no further evidence discovered in the car. The police brought in dogs and officers on horseback to search the rugged area, and the police marine unit dredged part of Lake Ontario. But no further clues emerged. The police believed Stephen Toussaint had dumped his car and fled. But where to remained a troubling mystery. 
four days after his bludgeoned body was discovered amongst human cadavers bound for medical dissection, 48-year-old Bob Ivins was laid to rest. The service had to be a closed casket because of the damage that had been done. Over 300 people attended the funeral service held at Christ the King Anglican Church in Etobicoke. Sitting in the front pew was Bob Ivan's wife, Shirley, and his two children, 15-year-old Megan and 10-year-old Michael. Their grief was palpable to all those in attendance. They had lost a husband and father who they adored under extremely bizarre circumstances. Other friends and family were also still reeling from the shock of what had happened. Bob Ivins and Stephen Toussaint had worked together for 22 years. Stephen had introduced Bob to West Indian food, and Bob had taken Stephen ice fishing. They were friends. But now, one of them was dead, and the other was missing. It just didn't make any sense. On Thursday, April 23rd, one week after the discovery of Bob Ivan's body, the Metro Toronto Police announced an arrest warrant for 54-year-old Sunday school teacher Stephen Toussaint on a charge of second-degree murder. The police also announced that all three church fires had been classified as arson, and they believed there was a connection between the murder and the fires. There was even talk that some of the fires may have been set to cover up additional crimes. As the church treasurer, had Stephen Toussaint stolen money from his church? Toussaint's distraught family didn't want to believe he was capable of the crimes he was being accused of. But they begged him to surrender. His picture was on the front page of every Toronto newspaper, and the press had been camped out on the front lawn of their Scarborough home for days. The past week had been a nightmare for Norma Toussaint and her two daughters. But they just wanted Stephen to be found alive so he could explain everything. They, too, couldn't make sense of what had happened. But for those investigating the crimes, the motive was clear. The police believed that Stephen Toussaint had returned to work after his vacation and discovered that the morgue had been cleaned up and reorganized by Bob Ivins and Susan Hausman. This angered him. Then, he was issued a written reprimand from Dr. Liebgott, his supervisor. If he didn't clean up his act, they were going to take further action. Stephen Toussaint had worked at the University of Toronto for 31 years, and now it looked like his days were numbered. His secret life, the one spent in seedy bars, had finally caught up to him. His longtime co-worker and friend, Bob Ivins, had covered for him for years, and now the gig was up. The real Stephen Toussaint had been exposed. So, he snapped. 
and in a fit of rage, he bludgeoned Bob Ivins to death before stuffing his body into a body bag and hiding it in a closet. Then, as police later discovered, Stephen Toussaint did something else. He left a message. At 5.18 p.m., likely not long after he had killed Bob Ivins, Toussaint left a voicemail message for his boss, Dr. Liebgott, who had issued him the letter of reprimand. The phone message said, quote, Hey, Doc, come down to the morgue. I've got some bones to show you. End quote. After leaving the cryptic message for his boss, Stephen Toussaint casually walked across the street to join his other colleagues for a few after-work drinks, just like he always did. As the weeks and months went by after the murder of Bob Ivins, investigators were still no further ahead in their search for Stephen Toussaint. His passport and citizenship documents had all been found in his home, so it would have been difficult for him to have left the country. But where was he? The missing man's family still refused to believe that he could be guilty of killing his friend Bob or setting the church fires. The whole story just didn't add up. The man they knew had no history of violence or psychiatric trouble. A lawyer hired by the family told the media that Toussaint's wife and daughters were not being told much by the police but they were deeply concerned that Stephen had also been a victim of foul play and feared for his safety. While Stephen Toussaint's whereabouts remained a mystery, the bizarre story had made national and international news. Stephen Toussaint was now on Canada's most wanted list, and the brutal murder of his colleague was about to get a lot more attention. This guy is the worst of the worst, worst of the worst. We have to get him off the streets tonight. If you know anything about this case, you've got to make the call. You make the call, we make the capture. America's Most Wanted. America's Most Wanted, a very popular show at the time, reenacted the killing of Bob Ivins and the Toronto church fires. The show portrayed Stephen Toussaint as a man who was living a double life, a respected church elder and family man to many, but in reality, he was a chronic alcoholic that spent more time in bars than at his job. When his two worlds collided, he killed his work colleague of 22 years, And then, for some unexplained reason, he burned down his church and two others. Now, millions of people across North America had seen Stephen Toussaint's face, and he was going to have a much harder time hiding out. The Toronto police were very hopeful they would find their man. America's Most Wanted did generate renewed interest in the bizarre case, Numerous tips came in to investigators, and there were many potential sightings of Toussaint. 
but none of the leads panned out, and the police still had no idea where he was. Months went by without any further information, but his family continued to hope and pray that he would be found alive. Then, on July 23, 1999, 18 months after the murder of Bob Ivins and the mysterious church fires, Norma Toussaint received a phone call. It wasn't the police, but a friend telling her that a body had been found, and they were announcing on television that it was her husband, Stephen. It wasn't the news she had wanted to hear, and it certainly wasn't the way she wanted to find out. Badly decomposed human remains had been found by a hiker at the Scarborough Bluffs and the police had identified them as belonging to the 54-year-old suspected murderer and arsonist. An autopsy could not confirm how he died, but positive identification had been made using dental records. The search for Stephen Toussaint was over. The Toronto police had undertaken an international manhunt for Toussaint. He was on Canada's most wanted list, and had even been featured on the TV show America's Most Wanted. But, as it turned out, the Canadian fugitive hadn't gone very far at all. Stephen Toussaint's final resting place was less than 500 yards from where the police had discovered his car two days after the murder of Bob Ivins. And he was only three kilometers from his home. With the discovery of his remains, the police announced that they were closing the murder investigation on Bob Ivins. They were confident that there were no other suspects to pursue. As for the congregation at Christ Church St. James, they had never stopped praying for Stephen Toussaint and his family. Many still didn't understand what could have driven the former Sunday school supervisor and church treasurer to murder his work colleague and burn down their beloved church. And while rumors circulated that the fire had been set to cover a possible theft, a thorough financial audit revealed that Stephen Toussaint had never stolen any money from his church. There were so many questions still left unanswered about that fateful night in April of 1998. But the members of Christ Church St. James harbored no ill will towards their former member. Their house of worship would eventually be rebuilt, and Norma Toussaint and her two daughters would always be welcome. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. 
And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.